Welcome to the STFM Podcast, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. In this podcast, we speak to leaders in academic family medicine about a variety of leadership topics. And now your host, Dr. Saria carter Sicosia. Today, you are in for a treat. Joining our STFM Podcast series today is Dr. Nika White. She is a national authority and fearless advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion. As an award-winning management and leadership consultant, keynote speaker, published author, and executive practitioner for DEI efforts across business, government, nonprofit, and education, Dr. White helps organizations break barriers and integrate DEI into their business frameworks. Her work has led to designation by Forbes as a top 10 DNI trailblazer. Welcome, Dr. White. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation. And thank you for accepting. We can't wait to hear your words of wisdom today. But for, before we jump into our lessons for our podcast. Tell us a little bit about your personal story, Nika. Sure. So I often tell people that the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion found me. Um, My background is marketing communications. And at the time that I was working in that industry, I really enjoyed it. And I thought that I was going to be... um, My career trajectory was going to be in that direct capacity. Because I loved the on-time, on-budget, on-strategy, fast-paced dynamics of the industry. And I began to wonder as I looked around at the agency that I was working for, and there were very few that looked like me that was a part of the organization. I I was struck by that um, for multiple reasons, one of which was that I realized that in order for us as marketing communications professionals to be really smart partners to our clients whose consumer constituencies represented Diverse America, it really required us to be very intentional about um, a diverse workforce and um, to help reach the masses. Um, And so I saw it as an opportunity, as a business opportunity. And I also saw it as an opportunity for us to be able to reach our BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal um, really soon, if we were to place our emphasis there, um, the agency that I work for also had a location in New York. And so I was in between both offices. And even the advertising market of the world, like New York, was challenged with you know, diversity in the workforce. And so the attorney general was knocking on the offices of many of those agencies saying, you have to diversify. Our industry depends upon it. This is not a suggestion. It is a mandate. We'll be back in six months to see how you're doing. But being based in Greenville, South Carolina, which is, was the headquarter of the agency that I worked for, no one was really paying a lot of attention to the South Carolina agencies. But yet and still, if our BHAG was to be the most admired agency, why would we wait for someone to place that mandate instead of seeing it as an opportunity for us to be a leader in that regard? And so I went to the president CEO, who was very hands-on, very accessible, and I um, shared a similar narrative about my desire to see the industry much more diverse. And he listened intently, asked some very thoughtful questions. And at the end of that conversation said, Nika, I agree. We need to do this. You're going to lead it. Now tell us how. And so I had to become really smart really quick 
and um, really just helping to create this pathway of um, effective change um, to help really capitalize on all of the opportunities that a strategic and intentional approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion can bring. And so that was that's why I say it found me. But really, if I take inventory of some of the things that I had attached myself to, um, it was always something to do with leaving no one behind, really trying to give a voice to the voiceless and to help everyone to be able to show up at their best in every environment. And so I'm, I'm fortunate that I am working in a space that I deeply care about and, um, and that I feel well, um, well qualified to be able to add impact. Wow, there's so much overlap in your industry and where you originated in marketing to what we do in healthcare and recruiting a workforce that mirrors our patients. Yes, absolutely. That's so important. You know, oftentimes we consider that um, we don't have to be intentional. Let's just, you know, put it out there and let whoever comes to join our, our workforces. But when we are in a space where the end result has a lot to do with um, diverse constituents, we have to make sure that we are also preparing ourselves to be able to meet the needs in a meaningful and relevant way of those diverse communities. And so definitely a great parallel to, to the healthcare industry. And you said a few words that got my attention because in my experience, this transition to a more diverse and equitable and inclusive environment feels more like a marathon than a sprint. However, what I heard from you, and I, I truly believe that this is necessary, your words of defining yourself as smart and quick with effective change. Can you talk through why that's so necessary in a time that requires endurance? And we won't see the change overnight, but I do believe you're onto something. Yeah, I think it boils down to the fact that the state of our society right now took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for us to get to where we are. So in order to undo that, we have to go into this considering that this is a journey. It's There's not a destination. We should continue to evolve our practices. We should continue to deepen our knowledge and our understanding so that we can be even smarter and more effective in problem solving for creating an equitable um, society where all people can show up at their best in all environments. And if we also consider the changing face of, of America, the demographics in and of itself is really shifting to a place to where we have to build up our cultural humility, our cultural intelligence, cultural competence, because that's what our world looks like right now. And if we aren't um, doing that, we're going to find ourselves not really being able to fully meet the needs of, of all of those we serve. And so I think that it's incredibly important for us to take more of an um, intentional approach than being proactive. And I think that also has a lot to do with why we have to remain steadfast. We have to believe that this, this work that we're doing, it leads to an end that helps to create opportunities for all of us collectively to emerge stronger. It's not just about those historically marginalized communities. It's about all of us. You know, sometimes we see it as a zero sum game and that's not the case. And so I really, I really am um, encouraged by how there's been a heightened appetite of people and organizations really trying to take notice of what the shifts that are happening. And they are becoming much more um, comfortable with the conversation. Not that it's easy, but they're becoming more comfortable 
And that's where it starts. We have to be willing to have the dialogue. I often say, let's push through our discomfort and let's choose courage because that's where we're going to find ourselves emerging stronger. And amen to that. Sometimes it can feel easy in the moment to lean into comfort rather than courage. However, the only way we will change this world in spite of centuries, as, as you mentioned, literally centuries of developing the world that we have today, we must be effective with our change and we have to start now. So it, it plays back to me an experience I had medical school and residency. You don't have time to sit and learn and only learn and build knowledge. At the same time, you must continue to build the work that you do to indeed take care of patients. It's an intense process that prepares you for delivery of healthcare for the rest of your career and for the benefit of communities and the health of the public. So let's turn the conversation slightly. You have served and worked with over 200 plus clients. You've seen, I can only imagine you've seen it all, (laughs) but I'd be curious to hear from you and I'm sure our audience will as well. Have you found some uniqueness in the academic institution arena? What's different there and what have you learned and what do you see in our teachers and our learners and how we can jump in and make some of these changes effectively and quickly? That's a great question. And I work with a number of of clients across so many different industries and sectors and sizes, and certainly healthcare and academia are two of those categories that uh, my firm has a wealth of experience in. I think when it comes to, first and foremost, um, the, the academic aspect, it is so critical to ensure we are modifying where appropriate our, our teaching styles, our um, the way of engaging different group of learners, because let's face it, you know, part of our diversity is in the way in which we learn and receive information, how in which we engage with that information as we are digesting and processing. Um, so I think that that's a big part of it as well. I also think that as it relates to research in general, there is a huge push right now um, to make sure that there is great level of intentionality of ensuring that when we are um, going through these research processes, we are considering the vast diversity, um, dimensions of diversity that are out there, right? And as we think about that from a healthcare perspective, that becomes incredibly important because we know that there are certain circumstances that can cause certain cultures and backgrounds to respond a certain way to different um, issues that we know are um, creating a lot of health concerns for, for many in our community. And when we think about the health disparities, I think it's also not about how do we properly address this health concern, but how do we also make sure that we are communicating the broader community so that they know where to go, what to look for, what signs, what resources are available. So I think that there's so many different ways in which, um, from an academic education perspective, it it falls directly in line with um, the healthcare industry. The other thing that comes to mind for me when I think about um, healthcare is the fact that we are seeing, as I mentioned just a moment ago, this huge shift in the the, the makeup of just the individuals that find themselves in different markets. And so if we aren't preparing all of our caregivers to understand 
um, how in which cultural intelligence is is going to um, help provide greater effectiveness and how in which they may do their jobs, then I think is going to cause us to literally, it could be life and death. It could also create situations where um, we aren't, you know, fully leveraging the level of innovation and intel that's out there to help us be at our best. And so when we think about operating at a high level, at an exemplary level, it certainly requires us to embed the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion into our very specific craft and, and discipline. And that's something that I think is foundational across so many different industries, but definitely when we talk about, you know, academia and, um, and healthcare. Mm-hmm. And what I hear you saying with the words embed the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's not an add-on. It's part of what we do, truly bringing it into the roots of healthcare period. Absolutely. It has to be brought into the DNA. It can't be something that's seen as a separate initiative or even a program. This, there's nothing programmatic about this. It's really about embedding it into the system, into the fabric of the organization. And sometimes we even relegate that to thinking about it from an HR perspective, because obviously the human capital is a significant part of, of organizations. But it's not just about that. It's also about our general operations. It's about our marketing communications. It's about our procurement practices. It's about the learning and development. You know, So we need to make sure that every stakeholder, regardless of if their title has something directly related to diversity and inclusion, this work belongs to everyone. And I find that that's a big opportunity for many organizations because there are a lot of people who care deeply about this work but they're passive about it in the sense that they see it as the responsibility of someone else. And typically that someone else is maybe the person that carries the title of chief diversity officer, right? Or, or maybe the HR professionals, or even, you know, just seeing it as specifically just the work for those who are in the C-suite. And the bottom line is that all of us should have some level of accountability to help to do our part within the sphere of influence we have to help foster greater inclusivity and, um, and, and make sure that people can just have a strong sense of belonging. One of the things I share often is that no one can show up at their best in any environment if they are always questioning whether or not they belong. If they are questioning day in and day out, do I belong here? Am I seen? Am I heard? Am I valued? Um, do my opinions count? Am I safe? If people are questioning those things, they're not bringing their A-game to that environment. And when we think about the work of healthcare and the important role and responsibility of having the literally the, the lives of others in our hands, then it should really give us pause to question and interrogate, are we doing all that we can to make sure that everyone that's a part of this organization can show up at their best so that we can take care of our primary mission, which is taking care of people? Wow. So I'm taking a pause. There's so much to unpack in your words there. And I, I want to do a little bit about that. You said this work belongs to everyone. And in, in order for this to work, we must all have a sense of belonging. That in itself is um, so powerful very important language. And each of us have this sphere of influence. What I heard from you is a chief diversity officer is important, but it's not work they do to an organization, 
but it's the work that we create together. Now, so I, I want to bring you up to speed historically in healthcare where we have focused. Of course, healthcare is one of those areas that attracts people who are drawn to humanity, mm-hmm. serving others, and doing no harm. And unfortunately, from time to time, we've had unintentional missteps. So several years ago, Nika, in the medical profession, we focused on race-based care. Mm -hmm. And we thought, this is it. This is us seeing them. But I say that specifically and intentionally. This is us seeing them as separate. And we have learned from that experience, that data and research that we believed validated and supported race-based care. However, that has evolved into something called race-conscious care, mm-hmm. which has truly changed how we serve patients. And I'll give an example. There is something called the glomerular filtration rate that indicates the function of kidneys. And we separate it out in lab work for black individuals and everyone else. Mm -hmm. And if I just paused right there, that (laughs) probably sends a message to us because the assumption we made was black people just don't filter with their kidneys the way that white people do. Right. And we didn't go deeper into the why. So I'm going to stop there and get your thoughts. What do you think about our our learning lessons and where we're headed and... (laughs) And perhaps some of our our fables and foibles. (laughs) You know, this work requires us to go deep. You know, I find that part of the missteps that occur has everything to do with our inability to really peel back all the layers, identify the root causes of of these issues that could be compromising equity, inclusion, and then solving for it there. And so what you described is really a phenomenon, while the example was very unique, It's really a phenomenon that I see across so many different organizations. We have to go deep. It is not enough for us to try to approach this at a surface level. And often what I talk about in that context is the difference between activity versus impact. Are we after impact, effective impact, which requires us to think about systems change, policies, you know, protocol. It's all the things that really helps us to sustain the change that we want to see because we've done enough research and we have enough data that we've collected that helps us to be informed about what we need to do. Otherwise, if we just make a shift without really going deep, it's activity. Activity has start and end date, and it can be a hit or miss. And again, this is not a space where we can operate off of a hit and miss mentality. We have to make sure we're going deep. We have to make sure that we're following our curiosities and that first and foremost, we can um, increase our curiosity so that we're asking the right questions. We're talking to the right people. I often say nothing about me without me. And so when we think about healthcare, it requires us to hold a lot of intel, a lot of information. And no one person can be responsible for all of that, which is why it requires a systems change. What is the protocol to make sure we're leveraging all of those key resources that may have the insight and the information so we can collaborate together so that our approach is one of which that's going to allow us to 
to, again, have sustainable change in areas that matter the most. Humanity is at the core of this work. It really is. And so you, you spoke about the human aspect, the human element, which is what draws a lot of people. Well, guess what? When we talk about inclusion, belonging, equity, there's at the core of that is humanity. And so it's certainly a great um, blend and it should be thought of in, in that type of capacity. Absolutely. And it's important to keep that humanity component. After all, that's what we do every day. When we lay hands on patients and serve to heal and support and improve their health, it's important that we see them for who they are and understand who we are in that conversation. Yeah. And as you said, nothing about me without me. Yes. I um I'm a big believer of um, the importance of the difference between intent versus impact, and I believe that sometimes we will let the fact that our intentions were not meant to um, create harm to cause us to get a pass, but we still have to be accountable for that impact, you know. And so this is a really small example, but I often share that if you step on my toe. And you apologize. I really can know that you did not mean to create me harm. But guess what? My toe still hurts, right? <laughs> and so, and again, if we relate that to healthcare, um, it is it is even more imperative that you know all of the I's are dotted and T's are crossed to ensure that we are doing everything we can because we cannot exonerate ourselves from the consequences of our actions, whether we meant for it to create harm or not. Mm-hmm. And no doubt. We've unintentionally, but still impactfully created a lot of sore toes. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So we've talked a lot about patience. Now, I'd like to get your insight on our workforce, on our people who were serving those in the exam room, in the hospital, um, in the community. And we have been incredibly challenged in medical school and residency and recruiting people of color into medical school to start. But what I am proud of and what we are seeing is this incredible rich fabric of diversity in family medicine specifically. We're seeing more people of color. We're seeing more people of various gender orientations. And we're seeing those from rural backgrounds and urban backgrounds. And so all of these differences in diversity that we are infusing into family medicine is helping to serve the people that we serve. However, I do believe what we will continue to see for quite some time are faculty that are probably more typically white and more typically male. Now that is rapidly changing. In family medicine, we're seeing a a balancing between male and female gender, but we may see that the teachers are our learners, Mm -hmm. and it's important for us to, I think, help that conversation. So as we talk about transitioning from activity to impact, what are some ways as faculty that we can reach in, learn, and better understand so that our intentions have an impactful effect? I love this question because it it is critically important. And we are fortunate that we have many communities of of allies 
who really want to effectively create change that they want to see and that every citizen deserves. And so I think that's part of it is we need to lean more into this allyship mentality. And what that looks like at bare minimum is action, but not just any action, useful action. Being an ally is not something that we can label ourselves. We have to earn that label. And we earn that from the people in which we are allying for and advocating for. And it's not about allyship of people who are like us. It is really easy to have an affinity to people who are like us. Rather, when we talk about allyship, it is about those historically marginalized, underrepresented, I like to say underestimated groups that oftentimes are not um, thought about at the start. They're kind of an afterthought. And that requires those allies, those faculty members to really get proximate to the lived experiences and the challenges of those in which they're allying for. How do you do that? You build relationships and you get very intentional about building those relationships so that you really can understand the pain points, the complexities, the, the, um, the challenges, the burdens, all of the ins and outs. And you operate in a space of very collaborative with that community, right? Sometimes we assume that we know what communities that we're wishing to help need, but we don't even ask the question. So it starts with us being really devoted to, I want to hear, I want to listen so that I can not react, but respond. And there's a difference between reacting and responding. And so sometimes we want to be the ally, but we want to do it taking the easy route. And um, that's not really what's most useful and most helpful. We have to sometimes even directly ask the question, what does support look like for you? How can I help you in this moment? What are you experiencing right now? And, And then really letting that information inform how we can best walk alongside that individual or that community. And again, I use the words walk alongside because it really is a shoulder-to-shoulder type of, of, of allyship scenario. And, um, and I think that's the biggest separator from those allies who really are effective versus those who are operating from a place of um, looking for accolades or, or really being performative with it. Are you getting to the crux of the matter? Are you walking shoulder-to-shoulder with these individuals? Are you... Um, as best as you can, helping to fully understand from their perspective what those challenges are. And it's only then that I believe, as an ally, we can truly be effective in creating the change that I think those communities who are underserved really need. And what I hear you uncovering is also the ability of teachers and professors to be vulnerable. We're often in a space of professing, teaching, showing people the way, Uh, but it it reminds me of the exam room Mm -hmm. and I may have medical knowledge, but if I don't understand the patient before me's um, interest, worries, concerns, and needs, I I, I can't make the assumptions that I know what's best for them. So I I think it, it causes this intentional pause as you said, starting with the question and just with some simple words, such as what does this experience look like for you? I'm taking all kinds of notes here because this is great feedback and um, teaching for us all. Mm -hmm. And and you are, 
I was just going to say what I'm giving you are tools, you know, the, what does this look like for you? What does support look like for you? Well, even when someone has reached a point to where, um, even through maybe some of the psychological, um, safety being compromised, they're able to articulate what's happening. We need to just lean in and say, tell me more about that. That's what I meant earlier when I mentioned we need to become much more curious. And I think that faculty should should certainly instruct students to just have this curious nature of asking questions. We make way too many definitive statements often, and we do not ask enough thoughtful questions and engage thoughtfully in dialogue to truly understand. And I think that's part of us um, putting ourselves in that person's shoes and really listening, listening to not immediately have a response or an answer, but just to understand and then letting that allow us to be much more informed about how do we approach this unique situation, seeing that patient as an individual and not as a population of, of people, seeing that person and their circumstances in a very individualistic way. Mm, so true. Getting back to seeing and hearing individuals to create that sense of belonging. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of the anxiety for people when they are faced with health issues is, is of course, the unknown, is the uncertainty. And that creates heightened anxiety, which we know can certainly um, perpetuate that the health, the health problems. And so, you know, we need to make sure that we are we're teaching. Um, you know, people, the, the importance of also leaning into just that level of empathy, that level of allowing people to feel seen and heard. Because if someone feels seen and heard in their moment of anxiety, that really does release some of that, which can be so helpful for the communication and the engagement and interaction. And then ultimately for, for the, um, the health outcomes of, of the individual that's experiencing whatever those health challenges may be. Hmm. So true. And so we've talked about the patient's experience. We've discussed the role and the importance of vulnerability in a teacher in healthcare. And I want to turn it to medical students and residents. Being in that hot seat, oftentimes um, feeling extremely vulnerable and um, feeling like you have the least information available and you want to perform for your attending, you want to give the best care to your patients. It can often be a space where we don't feel comfortable dropping our armor, if you will. Mm -hmm. And we also know it's so important to feel comfortable asking those questions. But what I'm trying to understand for a medical student who already feels vulnerable And perhaps if you're an African-American medical student and just a handful within your medical class, where you may feel like you have to do better, you have to know more, um, perhaps you can't share vulnerability the same way. How do we get everyone to feel comfortable in that space? You model it. And this is such a real phenomenon, particularly for for, um, professionals of color, students of color. Whenever you find yourself being the one and only or the the first, the few, the only, um, it can be it can be really difficult. And so that level of psychological safety automatically is compromised oftentimes when you don't feel surrounded by people who may share your same experience to the level 
and the intensity in which you do just because of, again, just the historical nature of how society has, you know, evolved over time. And so I think that first and foremost, we need to model giving students permission to be vulnerable, to say, I don't know. That's not taking away the accountability to be motivated to continue to deepen our own personal responsibility for learning and for growing. But we have to realize that part of the learning and the growing is to be able to, in those moments, to give ourselves that permission to say, I don't know, I need to deepen my understanding on this. So I need your help and your support. Otherwise, we are setting these individuals up to not be successful in an industry, in a discipline, in an environment where we need them to be at their best. This is not the time at all to cause them to shrink back, but um, to let them know that their strength and, and, and vulnerability, their strength and asking for help. And so I think the best way is to model that, to model that and let that um, serve as, as, as permission, if you will, that this is, this is a part of our learning and our growth, and this is part of our culture. And such helpful and comforting words. I feel like an eternal learner myself. And in medicine, we're constantly learning and relearning actually what we thought was right. Yes. And what can be better. And I think that's important. That's an important message. Modeling the strength and curiosity and eternal lifelong learning. Not only are we learning and relearning, but we're also unlearning, right? And there's a lot of misinformation mm. out there that we have been exposed to. So we are learning, relearning, unlearning, you know, and all of that certainly creates a circumstance to where we all should be extending grace and accepting grace to each other because that's where the growth happens. We have to give people that permission to, um, to, to fall forward, right? So true. Thank you for your permission, Dr. White, <laughs> for falling forward, for learning, relearning, and unlearning. This has been such a helpful session. I'm so glad. Thank you for the opportunity to be in communication around this, this really important topics. Well, Dr. White, I'm thankful for you and for other trailblazers that are making a difference in this world and embedding into our culture seeing, hearing, and valuing everyone. Regardless of if they've made it to the table yet, we're going to bring them to the table. Absolutely. And once they're at the table, we have to make sure that we are encouraging them to lead. We are supporting their success. We are, we are, we are really cheering them on and providing the environment and all of the resources for them to optimize on those experiences. And so I I'm a believer of bringing people to the table, but I'm also a believer in we need to make sure we're intentional about what we do once they're at the table. How do we welcome them in, really? Well, let's eat. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And, and let's bring everyone to the table equitably. Thank you, Dr. White. Thank you. I've really enjoyed sharing this time with you. And um, I'm grateful that you have allowed me to um, be a part of your platform to, to really extend this message of embedding DEI into the work of um, healthcare industry. And I hope that I have planted some seeds that will, will be nurtured and, and will grow <laughs> for those that will be privy to all of this information and this conversation. You've been listening to the SDFM podcast produced by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. Visit us at sdfm.org and follow us on Twitter at stfm underscore fm. 
This podcast is Copyright Society of Teachers of Family Medicine 2021.